morning. Years ago, <coughs> I happened to be on a mission trip in Haiti when an earthquake hit. And it was scary and sad. And many of you probably remember that earthquake. But one of the few things that made it a little more bearable was the fact that I had forgotten the previous year to remove the international plan from my phone. Now, what that says about me as a person is one thing, but it was a great gift because all of a sudden we had a way to reach out to our friends and family who were thousands of miles away and let them know that we were all right. Now, given the cost of each and every one of those minutes and the uncertainty of the connection, it was really important that every person on the team pick one person that they were going to call and know what they were going to say before they even began. When we find ourselves in unsure situations, in scary situations, we want to be as sure as we can that our message gets across to the people we love. Today we begin a new series on the book of Philippians. And as we will find out, this is a letter that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, most likely from prison in Rome. Now, getting a letter from Rome to Philippi was no easy matter. There was no Snapchat, there was no texting, no email, there wasn't a postal service. No, best estimates figure that the distance from Rome to Philippi on any given route was between 700 and 1,200 miles. And it could take anywhere from six weeks to three months to get a letter from one to the other. I think we can assume then that every word that Paul wrote to his beloved Philippian church is important. Paul was living under house arrest, unsure of his fate from day to day. And he took to paper to tell those close to his heart that which he hoped and believed would benefit them most. In his opening words, Paul reveals to us that the mere thought of and prayer for the Philippians brings him joy. And it is this joy that has me so intrigued. What is joy? Where does it come from? What does it look like? What is it good for? In both Greek and English, the term joy is difficult to define. Both languages resort to using another emotion to try to describe it. In English, we talk about it as being comparable to happiness, a feeling of happiness. And in Greek, they do the same thing, but they talk about it in a feeling of gladness. But many languages have perhaps realized the problem in attempting to define joy. And instead, they rather express it idiomatically. That is, for example, when they're trying to talk about joy, you might say, my heart is dancing. Or maybe you would say, my heart shouts because I am happy. The common theme, though, is that joy seems to be something that wells up from the very center, the very heart of a human. And it is not tied then to the outward circumstances that we will face. As Paul prays for the Philippians, 
<clears throat> he does so with some kind of soul-deep emotion. It's something bigger than himself, and it is out of this deeper something that Paul begins to share his heart for his brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi. <clears throat> Paul writes, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Paul knows these Philippians. After all, as Anna reminded us, he is the one who brought the gospel to them years before. He knows the people, their hearts, their triumphs, their faults and failures. Like a mother and her child, Paul has watched the young church in Philippi grow. And my guess is with pride as they have spread and defended the gospel. As they have stood beside the apostle himself. I began to wonder if perhaps at the moment that Paul decided to write this letter to the church in Philippi, if maybe the church had hit a bit of a plateau. We all know when we become new Christians, it is easy to follow God. We feel like our hearts are on fire. We want to tell everyone about this amazing good news. We want to follow and serve and reach out and share the kingdom. But as the years go by and we see more disappointment, we face more roadblocks and red tape, we see ourselves stumble and fail, it can begin to wear on the soul. And rather than joy, the work of the kingdom begins to become a chore. And we start to feel like the weight of the world is on our shoulders. We begin to take salvation onto ourselves. We look at our children or our friends or our parents, our spouses, and feel like God isn't working fast enough. Things aren't happening. And so we start to see ourselves as Savior instead of Jesus. And when we take on that role, we are bound to fail. But Paul steps in and he reminds his beloved friends and us that for thank goodness it is not up to us. That the one who has begun the work will bring it to completion. And perhaps then this is the source of joy. That Jesus is the one on whom all things depend. Not you, not me but the one who always brings to completion that which he promises. It's this source that will sustain Paul when he's in jail, and it is this source that will enable the Philippians to continue their work. For Paul and the Philippians are more than just friends. They are, in fact, partners in the gospel and partners in God's work in the world. Of all the churches, these are the people who have stood beside Paul through everything. They are the one for whom his heart longs. One of the things about joy that we find in the Gospels is that it finds its full, its full expression, not in isolation, but in community. Joy in many ways is like a mosaic or a stained glass window. A million individual pieces are lovely enough on their own. But when you put them together, 
when you reflect all of their different shades and shapes, they become breathtaking. A friend of mine recently had a baby, and to see her pregnant was wonderful. She glowed, and it seemed like joy spilled out of her. The promise of a child, the promise of what was to come for her and her family illuminated her from within. But to see her now with her new child and her husband and her family members gathered around, to see all of their joy together in one place as their different experiences reveal it, that is so much more. If we think back to those moments in our lives when we have experienced joy, not happiness, not a simple pleasure at favorable circumstances or good luck, but real joy that comes from within, my guess is that most of those moments take place for you in relationship to other people. Things like weddings or births, these kind of events bring happiness, but they're more than that. Because happiness is often a fleeting feeling. It is here for a moment and then gone. But joy is far more enduring. It's more than an emotion. At its core, joy is somehow tied to us understanding our very meaning as people. I like how the Common English Bible version translates verses 9 to 11. They write, this is my prayer, that your love might become even more and more rich with knowledge and all kinds of insight. I pray this, that you might be able to decide what really matters. And so you will be sincere and blameless on the day of Christ. I pray then that you will be filled with the, right, the fruit of righteousness, which comes from Jesus Christ, in order to give glory and praise to God. If Paul is only going to have this one prayer, if this is his last lecture, then Paul is sharing his deepest hope for his friends. And it is not a hope for perfection, not that they become perfect disciples. Rather, it's a hope that their love continues to grow and overflow and abound more and more. And he prays that the spilling of love will be balanced also with the knowledge and insight of God. And maybe then this too is the source of joy. Love that has knowledge and insight. To know its real source. And to see Jesus clearly as that source. Why does any of it matter? Paul tells us that it's important that we experience this love and wisdom so that we can decide what really matters and then be sincere before God. It's easy to get caught up in this world on the small things. And we see it all the time. We see churches fighting over small doctrinal issues when children are starving. We see ourselves more concerned about music styles and what people wear as we drive by our brothers and sisters in the rain on a corner without a roof over their head. 
And it's one of the biggest critiques of the modern church as thousands and thousands of people walk out of church doors and don't return. The accusation of hypocrisy is not misplaced, unfortunately, in many of our lives. The word sincere that Paul uses here is fascinating. Because in Latin, it means without wax. And in Greek, it means sun-tested. Little odd. Both of these come, though, from the same experience, the same type of thing. And that is, in the ancient world, there would be people who would make pottery. And oftentimes, this pottery would develop big cracks. And in order to be able to sell this pottery for as much as they possibly could, occasionally, a shady merchant or two would fill the cracks with wax so they become invisible. But there was a way to get around these merchants. You see, you could take this pot and set it out in the sun for a long period of time in the heat, and the wax would melt. If there was wax and the cracks became visible, you would call it sun-tested. Paul is telling us that our Christian life, our walk with God, ought to be one without hypocrisy, without wax. So constantly exposed to the light that is Jesus and the message of God that it is continually sun-tested. When we live in a way that is filled with love and wisdom, a way that knows that it is Jesus who completes and perfects us, then we have no fear when we're told to come blameless before God. I don't know about you, but I am not blameless. In fact, it often makes me nervous when I hear that word. If you have found a way to achieve this, I really hope you will impart your wisdom. When we are sincere and honest in who we are and our need for Jesus, we begin to understand that on that day when we stand before God, it will not be our blamelessness that's seen, but rather it is Christ who has promised to finish in us the restoration project he began. And it's a relief to not have to pretend to be perfect, but to be able to openly admit to all of the fractures and cracks and broken parts of our lives. A life that is under this kind of construction is one in which we can begin to see the fruits of righteousness. Those are the same ones that if we were to go ask our fourth graders upstairs, they could recite. We find it in Galatians, that is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. But these are not things that are achieved by an effort of will. They only come from a life that is lived in the light and is tested by the sun. There is a Japanese art form called kintsugi that is centuries old. It is the art of fixing broken pottery with gold or platinum, precious metal. And they take these broken pieces and they form them back together. 
and we find beautiful glints of gold and seams and cracks on pottery and ceramic ware, giving each a unique appearance. The repair method is centuries old, and it highlights each artifact's unique history. It emphasizes the fractures and breaks rather than hiding or disguising them. It often is seen to make the repaired piece far more beautiful and far stronger than its original form. This is the heart of Paul's message to the Philippians, that they would have the love and knowledge to see their own faults and cracks and the love and knowledge to see the broken places in the world and that they would then trust the potter to repair them. Too often we try to fill our own broken places with wax. Temporary happiness as a stopgap measure in the world. But under the heat of living, under the heat of real life and the pressures we face, that wax melts away and reveals the same brokenness still there. But instead, Jesus promises to bring us to completion to fill all those cracks, not to hide them away, but to celebrate the beauty and the stories that have brought us to him. On this first Sunday after Easter, we are reminded that when Jesus appears eventually to the disciples, he still bears the scars on his hands of this world. But they have been transformed and are now not symbols of tragedy, but triumph. The joy we seek, that Paul experiences, can't be achieved by human work or means. It is a gift that comes from knowing the one who holds all of your pieces in his hands and trusting that he will restore them so that when they are finally presented to the Father, there will be no flaws and rather that they will instead be seen blameless through his work. What is the source of joy? Over the next few weeks, perhaps the better question is, who is the source of joy? As we travel with the Philippians through this letter, let us be a people who are able to see what really matters and then to have enough love to act on it. A people who don't fear their own faults, who don't seek quick fixes and fake perfection, but trust that they will be filled with the love of Jesus and made complete and blameless on the day when we will see joy face to face.